Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to session six in our study in the life of Christ. We'll be looking at two topics in this lesson. The first is conflict with the Pharisees, and the second is the parables of Christ as found in Matthew 13. So join us as we begin today's study. Father, we're thankful for tonight and for bringing us out here to this place to open your word and to take a glimpse at our Savior and his life and uh, what he faced. I pray that you would guide our discussions, guide our, our thoughts tonight. We thank you for the wonderful Savior that we have who came into this world to save us from our sin and to give us eternal life. May we love him. May we honor him as we should, and get a little bit better understanding of what he was like. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're looking at the life of Christ. We're going to pay some attention to conflict with the Pharisees or conflict with the religious muckety-mucks. And uh, you can't read the Gospels very far before Christ is all of a sudden at odds with the established religious system. I mean, he, he had a constant fight with them. And uh, they fought over everything. And the basis of the fight was that what had happened in Israel, they had taken God's word, they had taken the law of God, what God had revealed, and had transformed it into something that was never what God intended it to be. They created their own religion. They created really a system that was had very little to do with what God's original intent was and everything to do with um, their supposed ability to keep it. And they created something that was not even close to what Judaism was. So when Christ came along and raised true religion back to what it should have been, it was completely out of sync with what they had thought it should have been in the first place. And that's the basis of the conflict. And you see this again and again and again throughout the, the four Gospels. One of the first areas that Christ and the Pharisees really had trouble with was with this law and grace. The Pharisees were all about law. They were all about the legal code. They were all about what you did. Their entire life hinged around their actions and activities. And they felt that if they did their list of things, if they fulfilled whatever the rules were, that God was obligated to accept them. God owed them. They were very good at patting themselves on the back and congratulating themselves for how righteous and how godly they were. However, Christ, when he came, he said, I am the end of the law. In fact, Paul says Christ was the end of the law. In what sense is Christ the end of the law? Well, he's not the end of the law in the sense that he was going to end the law. But he was the end of the law in two senses, I think we can talk about. One, he was the complete fulfillment of it, right? Mm -hmm. What did all the Old Testament sacrificial system point to? You mean the law? Yeah, all the sacrifices. What do they point to? What are they pictures of? Christ. Christ. 
I mean, he fulfilled the law in the sense that he was the one to which the law was pointing. He also fulfilled the law in another sense in that he kept it all, right? And he also fulfilled the law in the sense that he forever ended the law as a potential means of righteousness. See, again, we talked about this. If you don't have Christ, what is your only hope of being right with God? Theoretically. Keep the law. Keep the law, theoretically. Or do the best you can and hope that God... But even today, that wouldn't count because the Bible says you must be born again. Absolutely. But if you did not have Christ... If Christ... Old Testament yeah. time when they didn't have Christ. No. Okay. If you did not have Christ, period. If you didn't know about If Christ never came, okay. what would be your only hope of what getting to heaven? Know? Keeping the law to the best of your ability and hope that God cuts you some slack. I mean, that's really it. If you if you look at the Old Testament, in a sense, God provided for their inadequacy with the uh, sacrifices. Yeah. Because he knew they couldn't keep the law. Yeah. So he made the sacrifices, which pointed to Christ. Right. So that was really a form of grace to them. Yes. God always provided a way back. God... God has basically said, look, you're estranged from me, but if you want a relationship with me, here's what you do. And he's given us that. And we come on his terms, we're okay. Now, even in the Old Testament, how, did, how was one ultimately to approach God? By what? Say that again. How was one ultimately made right with God? How could they approach God? By what? In the Old through the yeah. Through the sacrifice? No. Or through the law? No. How is Daniel righteous? You believe in God. You believe God. That's 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 really the root. Now, the sacrifices were pictures, right? And uh, by the way, prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law, was there any rules on sacrifices? That we know of. Well, we know that Cain and Abel gave sacrifices, and Cain, uh, his wasn't accepted because he knew it had to be a blood sacrifice. But there's, there was no, although we knew what kind of sacrifice God wanted, there was no rules on to how often. Oh, okay. Right? Um, and could you be made right with God without having a sacrifice? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, who's a good example of that? Enoch. Enoch, Daniel, you know, others. See, the Old Testament law pointed to Christ. Christ was the fulfillment of that. And the law was meant to force men to cry to God for deliverance. But the Pharisees were just overcome by the concept of the law. You look back in the Old Testament, and nobody really fulfilled the law. But you look at Enoch's life, mm -hmm. he lived a righteous enough life that God just took him to heaven. Yep. So the question is... I want to talk to him when I get to heaven. I want to find out what's that. Like that. Well, evidently he got it from who? I mean, who was alive when he was alive? Adam. Yeah, Adam was alive. Adam was still living. So the real question is, and it is just a question because I'm asking... 
if he was able to live a righteous enough life, you would think that it's, it should be within the power of all humanity to do that. Theoretically, yes. So really, when God gave the law, he gave it to us knowing that we could fulfill it if we really absolutely wanted to in our life and committed to do it. No, we couldn't fulfill the law. Because the law does not talk merely about your external actions, it talks about your internal heart. And although you can be, there's different, different people can keep different amounts of the law, nobody could keep it perfectly. Even Enoch, even Enoch did not keep the law perfectly. Enoch sinned. I mean, we don't have him listed in the Bible, but he sinned. He was a human. That's the reason I was asking. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you look at it, in one respect, you know, he must have done something right. Well, he had a relationship with God, right? He, he loved God and had a relationship with God to the extent that it colored everything he said and did in his life. Doesn't mean he was sinless. He never lost his temper, never had a bad hair day or whatever, but it means that he was overwhelmed with God's love and grace and he wanted to please God that he did and he was able to. And that's one of the things I think we can do. We can please God. But God God gave the law not, not to make us righteous, but to show us in a sense how bad we were because the law showed an absolute standard of perfection that we couldn't attain to. And then there's Christ in the inner, internal versus the Pharisees and the external. What do we by let me let me give an aside on this before I move on from grace versus law. Here's a practical application. Okay? And and I've I've come to a different conclusion on this than I used to have earlier in my Christian life. If I'm faced with someone, some situation in life, or if I took a strict legalistic stand, I would decide A, or if I exhibited a certain level of grace, I would choose B, what do you think would be the best choice? Mm -hmm. I've changed because so many times we get just so stuck on the legalistic things that we're not very gracious to people now we're not saying you, you violate a clear command of scripture that's not that, that's not what we're talking about here but I think a lot of times we've become sort of graceless in our lives. I look at Christ, how he exhibited grace to people. Now, if there's anybody that really knew right from wrong and what should or shouldn't be done, it was him. But he, he exhibited a great deal of grace and compassion on people. But well, you know what? I understand, though, um, even talking to Christians is um, it's so hard to explain to them you know, when you come into class and we learn it so we can do that, it's so hard to get over to people now. Uh, this this thing with this um, 
healing ministry that's come up again. Yeah. This man showed up and tried to heal people. And I was trying to tell the lady that in this day, that there isn't any healing going on. No. Like that. And they find it so hard to believe that that God isn't doing it again. You know, that but I said, then I try to say, well, when God when Jesus came <clears throat> on the scene and when he healed somebody, how long did it take? It was immediate. Yeah. But Christians don't un, I mean, they don't they don't get it because we go by the whole book. Yeah. And the book says that Jesus can do this. So why they're saying, why can't he do it now? Well, he can do it. But you know, it's not yeah, when you yeah, the problem is when you compare what's going on today with what went on in the New Testament, they're, they're worlds apart. Yeah. All right. And they can't see why not. Yeah. It, it's an issue of, you know, it's it's like kids who believe in Santa Claus. You know, don't tell me there isn't Santa Claus because those presents appear Christmas Eve somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's mommy and dad. I don't believe that. They they came from somewhere. You know, it's it's an issue of maturity. So I, I, I just come to the conclusion that I'm not gonna try to help them understand. It's so hard trying it, to it, prove to a Christian yeah. who reads the Bible. They don't understand it. What it, they think they don't understand, they take it out of context. Yeah. That's what if, if they're willing to be taught, I'll teach them. If they just want to argue with me, I'll go watch television or the grass grow or play a game of golf. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? There, yeah, there comes a point when it's not worth, it's not worth fighting, fighting with an individual over it if they don't want to hear. Yeah. It's so hard. I'm telling you. know. It's because, like I said, this thing about yeah. this healing come up. And, and so I have to set my knowledge aside because they don't want to hear. No, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. And I'm like, man. So tell me this: if if a Christian don't want to hear it, or if they think that I don't have the right knowledge, then you just let them go. You let them go if they're not open to being taught. Okay. But they think they got it right, though. If they want to talk, you know, here's the problem. I used to think, I know we're on a rabbit trail, but it's a good one. When I was younger, I thought it was my responsibility to straighten out everybody's theology. And I've learned in my older age, I can't do that. If somebody wants to be taught, if they want to discuss it, if they want to be open to learning, I will go to any lengths in that regard. If I look over and I see somebody who, okay, they believe in a pre, they're a post-tribulational person. I'm not going to blow hours of my time trying to track them down and convert them. Now, if they, if they want to talk about it, if it comes up in a conversation, I'll do that. But I can't be going around straight out everybody's theology. I really can't do that. Now, if it's an issue, if it's a, if it's an issue of sin or something like that, that's, that's different. You're supposed to go after them. But there comes a point when it's best to Sometimes allow the Holy Spirit to work in their heart and let them grow up a little bit before you deal with tougher topics. Does that make any sense? Yes. I mean, you've, Gary faces that in this church. That's I mean, what I'm saying. That's why I'm you know, if, I know if, 
if he tries to straighten everybody's theology out that walks in the door, he's going to go bananas trying to do that. It, it doesn't work. You know, it creates an adversarial relationship. Not only that, but you know when you ask that question about A and B, <clears throat> you know, I grew up in a very strict holiness movement. I mean, I could tell you stories. And it really got to be very hard to live like that because it was just a lot of do's and don'ts. Mm -hmm. And you know the average the average person would come in and get saved, and the next thing you know, they're telling, "Well, now that you're a Christian, you can't do that. You can't do this. You got to change this." You, and you know they don't even give them time to to even begin to learn. And I've made yeah. a decision since we've started, especially since we started the church, and we're setting precedent. Is that when somebody gets saved, we're going to accept them just like they are. Yeah. And we're going to love them, mm -hmm. just like the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And we're going to let God lead them and convict them in God's own time. I like what MacArthur said. He says, I don't want my church to have any higher standard for getting into my church than God has for getting into the kingdom. You know, and a lot of times it's easier for a person to get saved than it is to join our church. Because we had all these rules on to it. And, and, and look, we're not talking about obvious issues of sin and rebellion. We're not, that's not what we're talking about. You know, I remember when in the church I grew up in, there was a guy, there was a young man that came to know the Lord and came there to church, called himself Buck. He loved country western music, and they just made his life miserable over country western music. Well, look, there are other things to worry about. Yes. All right? Let, let God work through that with him. Give him grace. Exhibit grace to people. Let God grow them up. Yeah. All right? If you have somebody join your church and they like having a glass of wine with spaghetti, don't pop a vein and call them before the deacon board for being an alcoholic if they're not. You know, give them time to grow up. Maybe God will work on them. You know, we, we're just, because if we don't, we're like the Pharisees. All right? Yeah, and that's what the second one here is. See, Christ was always asking, why? Why are you doing this? Not what are you doing, but why are you doing it? What's your reasoning? The Pharisees were all about the externals. All they cared about is how you looked on the outside. How you were on the inside was irrelevant to them. And that's where Christ really came up. I mean, we talk about that on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Mm -hmm. What's murder? Killing someone? No, it's hating them, right? What's adultery? Actually committing adultery or thinking about it? What's lying? Is lying actually lying or is it making an oath with your fingers crossed and you can get away with that? Christ is always looking at the heart. Why are you praying? Are you praying for show? You got full payment. Why are you giving your alms? Are you giving your alms in order to be seen? And when you fast, are you doing it so that people think how godly you are because you know you look a little bit off today because you didn't have any breakfast? Come on. The Pharisees were exper experts at the externals. They were experts at it. Remember Christ said you make long your tassels and wide your phylacteries so that people would actually see them? 
and how holy and godly they were. They were all about the externals. Christ says, you know, why are you doing it? If your heart's not in it, it's not acceptable to God. Christ was the truth. Even today, the fundamental Jewish people, you know, you look at the Orthodox Jew, man, they stick out like a sore thumb in the yep. community. Yeah, they do. They got them crazy black hats and curls on the side of their head. Mm -hmm. You can pick them out of the crowd. Yeah. yeah. And they think that somehow keeping the rules merits salvation for them. Keeping the rules. But is it, is it okay like nowadays? Is it because they haven't been taught? They haven't been taught. They don't, they don't know. They don't know. They don't know. So, um, you know, is Christ going to hold that against them? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. If you don't know. You have general revelation. You can look out and see the creator in the universe. That's enough to condemn you. I know you have trouble with that, Brenda, but that's yeah. the way it is. I know. I mean, if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah, but here's the point. Here's our problem. We cannot impose our image of morality or right or wrong on God. Because our image is what? Wrong. It's wrong. Skewed. It's, it's not right. We, I can't say... God's not fair. I have no right to ever say God is not fair. Because by definition, whatever God does is right. So if I think it's not fair, the problem is not on God's part. The problem is my part. And God says, I am holding them accountable. Because if nothing, they have general revelation. And they make no effort to find me. Yes. We don't like that, but that's what the Bible says. You know, we're in the information age. It's, it's not like you can't get on your computer and find out some information on a new subject. Yeah, you can go anywhere. You fight it. But again and again, the Pharisees said, they, they, they really banked on their traditions. This is what the fathers taught us we're going to do it. And Christ says, the fathers were wrong. You got to go back and reassess this. That's not what God ever intended. So what do you see? Well, again, 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 throughout the New Testament, Christ is just constantly in conflict with these guys. And one of the major areas of confrontation was the Sabbath. Again and again and again, you see this. Now, let's, let's think of the Sabbath. When God originally gave the Sabbath, what was the intention of the Sabbath? What was it for? What was its purpose? To give a man a break from work. That was the point. And by work, what do we mean by that? You didn't do your you didn't do your vocation whatever that would be. You didn't do that on the Sabbath day. All right, it was a day of rest. It was a day to relax. It was a day to take it easy. But what did the Pharisees created around it? They added up a stipulation. Oh, they added stipulation upon stipulation upon stipulation. 
You could only walk so far. You can only do so much. You could, again, 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 they did that. And Christ really nailed them on this because he was the Lord of the Sabbath. So by definition, could Christ break the Sabbath? He couldn't break the law of the Sabbath. I mean, he could break your Tradition. traditions about the Sabbath, okay. but he could not violate the original intent of God, could he? But they wasn't doing the original intent. No, they weren't. They had created a burden yeah. for people. And it's it's almost like when you read the Gospels, it's interesting. It's almost like Christ. It's almost like Christ sought out doing things on the Sabbath just to get just under to get, their skin, yeah, just yeah. to get them going. Yes, <laughs> I would think so. What's the first thing? John five nine through sixteen. What happened in John five nine through sixteen? This is Christ healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. What's Christ do? He goes up to this man who's been sick, laying at the pool, trying to get in there to get supposedly well. There was a myth or a legend that said if you got in there when the water was disturbed, you would be healed. And what did Christ do to the man? Well, he healed him, right? Instantly. The guide wasn't healed and then he was getting better. Now he had he had not been walking for a long, long time, right? And what he, he had been an invalid for 38 years. I mean, th this is the thing about Christ. It's not that he just healed the guy and then the guy had to learn to walk again. Right? Something else interesting is when he said take up your bed and walk, the man immediately got up. Yeah. So not only did he heal him immediately so that he could, but there was something in his mind that let him know that this was a reality. So that he even did it without even thinking. And he, and he could do it without having to relearn to walk again. Yeah. I mean, if you had been laid up for 38 years, then all of a sudden you were got the ability to walk again, you'd have to learn all over again how to move and walk. Your muscles would be atrophied. You wouldn't be used to standing. This guy got up and walked. And Christ told him, take up your bed and walk. So now if you've been laying there for 38 years, some guy comes along and says, take up your bed and walk. What are you going to do? I don't know if I'd be moving too fast. If you were healed, what would you do? I get up and walk. <coughs> and I'd take my bed along with me. Yeah, take it right out of the way. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the, the religious police found out about this. So came after him. Why are you carrying your bed? And all this was was a pallet. It wasn't a bed like we think of a bed. It was a little mat. Yeah. Why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? And of course, the guy there, you know, he said, "Look, you know, I've been here for thirty-eight years, and all of a sudden I can walk." And the guy who healed me told me to take it up and walk, and I'm, I, I did. I took it up and walked. Now, the guy did not know who Jesus was, right? No. But Jesus found them later on and said, See that you are see you are well. Send no more, let nothing worse come upon you. And I love verse 18 here. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Wait a minute. 
Why were they trying to kill him? He healed on the Sabbath. And, and this shows the hardness there. No one ever said, wait a minute. There's something going on here. Here's a guy who's been sick for 38 years. I walked over him every doggone day. And he's walking around. What's going on? They missed that totally. Instead, what were they worried about? <coughs> their tradition of the Sabbath. That was what they were worried about. There's a level of uh, level of authority that they were losing when Christ was doing all these things, and that that was another thing that really upset them. Because the the man that was born blind, when they interviewed him, they threatened to kick him out of the temple. Well, they did. They kicked so, him out of the synagogue. So you know, when you when you think about what's going on, you know, if you don't do things my way, we're going to kick you out, and then you don't have no way to God. That's what they thought. I mean, that, that's sort of like getting excommunicated by the Catholic Church, which is not a real problem since, you know, so what? Big deal. Um, but yeah, they were losing their authority. Christ was making them look bad. Christ was exposing their hypocrisy. That's the biggest thing. Christ was exposing the sham of their religion, and that's what really, really, really frosted them. He was making them look bad. On every level. On every level. He said, you guys are the experts in the law and you've missed the whole point of it. You know, you've missed the whole point of it. And they hated him for it. And they hated him because he exposed their hypocrisy. And he goes and has the gall to go heal this guy on the Sabbath day. And then you have another conflict, and this is in the cornfields. What's happening there? Well, Christ and his disciples are walking through the cornfields and they are grabbing a little bit of corn and they're shelling the ear of corn and, and eating it. Now, was this legal to do? No, gleaning. Yeah, gleaning was legal to do. Gleaning was? Yes. On the Sabbath? No. Oh. No, gleaning. Gleaning was legal, but they were not harvesting. They were just gleaning on the Sabbath. And so what... They left the, some of that stuff grow yeah. so people, poor people could come in. Yeah. So what happens here? Christ is walking through the cornfields. He and his disciples are grabbing an ear of corn. They're loosening the kernels and eating it. And what do the Pharisees do? You guys are breaking the Sabbath. How? Thought they were working. You're threshing the corn. And Christ says, you're missing the point. We're not threshing the corn, we're eating. Okay? It's one of those laws that they had put up around the Sabbath day. And Christ's answer to this is, is really a masterful answer. Number one, he points out what was the... Here's the thing. What is God more interested in? And this goes back to the grace thing we talked about. Keeping the minutiae of the law or starving to death? What is Christ interested in? What is God more interested in? Keeping the minutiae of the law or starving to death? Starving to death. Starving for the word. No. No. Keeping the law? No. The intent. Well, you gave us the, the intent. intent. Oh. 
It's a trick question. What did David do when David and his soldiers were hungry? What did they eat in the Old Testament? They ate showbread. They weren't allowed technically to eat that, but they were starving to death. They were hungry. They were famished. And God is not going to say, okay, well, I'm going to have you starve before I have you eat the showbread. No. Human need and exigency overrode the strictness of the law. You see this if you fall into a pit on a Sabbath. What do they do? Pull you out. Why? Because your need overrules the strictures of the Sabbath. Yeah. I mean, they, they had said, for example, if you broke your bone on a Sabbath, all you could do to that person is make them comfortable. You could not set the bone because if you set the bone, you were doing work. And you're not allowed to set, do work. That 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 was their that was their rules. I wonder how many times in the history of the Jewish nation did they quit fighting on the Sabbath? Yeah, the Jews actually the Jews were exempt from serving in the Roman army because of the Sabbath rules that they had. They didn't have to serve in the Roman army. But yeah, they had made a god out of this thing, and and Christ there is saying, well, number one. You guys are missing the point. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And even David broke the strictures of the law in order to eat. It was never the intent that God said you had to fast on the Sabbath day and you weren't allowed to eat anything. That's not the point. And then what Christ does, he goes through and he says, um, what about the priests that work on the Sabbath? Are the priests doing their vocation on the Sabbath? Sure they are. Because what are they doing? Slaughtering animals. Slaughtering animals on the Sabbath. They're working. The, the point is the Pharisees were missing the point. And again, again, you, you have other... What are some other examples of Christ in the Sabbath issues here? What about the man with the withered hand? Remember Christ healed him? How about the woman bent double? Was that, that was done on a Sabbath, I think. Again, 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 Christ hit them on this because they had taken the Sabbath day and created such a burden to people that you dreaded the Sabbath. You dreaded the Sabbath. And by the way, Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. He can do what he wants to on the Sabbath day. There's other conflicts he had, casting out of demons. So here's their problem. They sit around their little swivel, their little round table, and they conclude that Christ is an absolute heretic. He is not from God. And then what does Christ wind up doing again and again and again with the demons? Casting them out, right? So how do you explain that? As a Pharisee, how would you try to explain that? Yeah, he's, 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 he's from the demons. And this was really the high point of their rejection of Christ. This is the high point of the rejection. Go to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at this here. 
I'm using my iPad because I can't see my Bible well enough with my glasses to. Oh, yeah. I can't see it. I can't read it. Um, this here, I can make the print bigger and I can read it. But let's go to Matthew chapter 12. This is when Christ is going through the grain fields. Let's just, let's just, go, let's just read down through chapter 12 because you're going to really see the conflict here that he had with the Pharisees as he's working through this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. In their minds, what were they doing? Threshing. You're not allowed to thresh on the Sabbath. But in their mind, they had defined the act of eating grain in a field was an act of work. Threshing would be if I'm cutting it down and taking it to the threshing floor. and Yeah, that's, that's threshing. But they had created this rule that said you weren't allowed to even eat the grain from the grain field on the Sabbath because technically to do that, you would have to pluck it. You'd have to thresh it to eat it. So technically to them, that was work. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? And by the way, did God blame David on that for doing that? No. And why was that? Well, David and his men were extremely hungry. They were, there was an extreme physical need. And then... Or have you not read in the law how this, on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guilty? How do they profane or guiltless? How do they profane the Sabbath? They work. They kill animals. They do their vocation. They slaughter animals and burn animals and haul wood up to the altar to burn the animals. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's where I get this concept of, if you got to err, err on the side of grace. Just, to, you know, you got to err on the side of grace. Because too often we want to err on the side of law. Now again, we're not talking about obvious sin. We're not talking about that. But let's exhibit grace to people. And then it says, uh, he went on, from there and entered their synagogue on what? Sabbath day. And a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Now, he just spanked them regarding the eating of grain. He just made them look bad. Now he goes to the synagogue and where, what was this in the synagogue? Well, that was where the Torah was read. That was the house of worship. So what do they ask him? What are the Pharisees asking him? What is he doing? Is it lawful to do what? Oh, yeah, yeah. To heal on the Sabbath. Why were they asking him that? Because they, they wanted to know, to understand. They had a question. They're trying to trap him, trying to, trying to get him to do something. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And what's the rhetorical answer? Yeah, yeah you're going to do that. You're going to lift the sheep out of a pit. And he says, Of how much value is a man than a sheep? 
So if it's, it so it is lawful to do good on a Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to kill him. I don't get it. I don't I don't I don't get I don't understand. I don't comprehend their level of hatred towards Christ. You look at that and you just it's hard to put it into categories. Why did they hate him so? Here he healed this guy on the set. There's got to be something going on with him healing this guy. Where's he getting the power to heal? They don't even ask that question. All they're worried about is he's not doing it on the right day of the week. Do we act the same way sometimes? Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, verse 15. And many followed him, and he healed them. Oh. Well, that's better than the boy you're talking about, isn't it? Right? How many people came to his healing service and went away still sick? All of them. All of them. Because he said, call me next week and let me, let me know. That guy ought to be run out of town on a rail. Oh, it's a time, time delay, uh, time lapse. Season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another one happened this week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, another one he's healing things, and everybody's all in the uproar, and oh, my God. And he ordered them not to make him known. Why did he order them not to make him known? He does that a number of times. Though. Yeah. Why did he do that, do you think? I think it's because he didn't want to draw the attention to him. If you if, if somebody come along healing, then you're starting to look at that person and not the actual the actual the reason you was healed or mm -hmm. through who you was healed. You're looking at that person. Why did Christ come? Seeking to save, save that which was lost. All right. So what did he not want to be known as? A healer. Because that's what people want, right? They want healed, they want fed, they want their needs met. But immediately when Christ starts talking about cost and sacrifice and discipleship, everybody runs for the exits. Look, Remember the feeding of the 5,000. What happened? Well, Christ fed 5,000 of them. They were cortatsoed up. They were full. They couldn't eat another bite, which was rare for them in those days. He sends the disciples to the other side of the sea. He walks on water, picks them up, goes to the other side, and all the people, when they wake up the next morning, they wonder where Jesus went. They follow him across the sea. Why? To hear the next, to hear part two of the sermon? Breakfast. 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 Here's the point. Christ did not want people to follow him for what he gave them. Now, why did he still heal them? Well, he had mercy. Christ had mercy. And in spite of his efforts, people still followed him. 
But the question, he wanted people to follow him not for the food that perished. That's the bread of life discourse in John 5. Don't follow me for the bread that perishes. Follow me for the bread that doesn't. Well, how many people are following him now for the wrong reason? Well, look at all the people that are showing up at the healing service. Yeah. There's 50,000 in Joel Osteen's church. Yeah, 50,000. Don't go to church until you get sick. Yeah. If you're healthy, wealthy, and This was, And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Christ's healing. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised weed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Christ did not come to conquer the first time. He came to bring the message of salvation and repentance. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, in those days, you know, you know, some have said, well, wait a minute, do we still have demon-possessed people today? And I think, yeah, we do. You look at some of these criminals, you wonder, they, there's got to have a demon in them to pull the kind of things off they do. But I think Satan made a full court press when Christ showed up. I mean, this was the beachhead, right? Christ was establishing a beachhead. And I think demonic activity went up quite a bit when Christ showed up. And here's a man who was demon-possessed. He was blind and mute. And Christ healed him. And all the people were amazed, saying, can this be the son of David? The people were starting asking, maybe this, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe, maybe he's the one. I mean, look what he's doing. But the Pharisees heard it, and they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The only way he can do this is he's the lord of the demons. Beelzebub, the lord of the flies. Christ is casting out demons because he is their lord. The idea that Christ could actually be God was not something they even remotely considered. Their only explanation was he has to be a demon himself. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. That's stupid. If I'm casting out demons, I'm... I'm going against my own purposes. Wouldn't my purpose, if I was really the prince of demons, be to get as many people demon-possessed as I could? Right. Right. I wouldn't be casting them out, guys. Duh. <laughs> and if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? They had Jewish exorcists that went out and did this. So how are your sons casting them out? But did it work? In some cases, it might have. Seven sons of Sceva, right? In the book of Acts, the seven sons of Sceva. S-C-E-V-A. They were exorcists. They went out doing this stuff. And Remember, they went in one guy, and the guy said, Well, Paul, I know him, Peter, and Jesus, I know, but I don't know who you guys are. And he ripped off all their clothes and chased them out of the house. That'd freak you out there a little bit. 
But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. What's he trying to say? I'm not doing it by Beelzebub, you ding-dongs. I'm doing it because the kingdom of God has come unto you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What, what's Christ saying there? If I'm going to come into a guy's house and spoil it, I've got to be able to tie the guy up first, right? Or I've got to be able to subdue him. So if I'm going to come in and spoil the house of Satan, so to speak, and cast out demons, what does that imply about my power? Stronger than Satan. Stronger than Satan. By the way, this has nothing to do with us binding Satan. Get that out of our heads once and for all. And any joker that says, well, we need to bind the strong man, look, that's not what this is talking about. Christ is using this as an illustration. What's the illustration? If I'm going to rob your house and your home, I've got to subdue you. And, if you, and, and that means in those days, what? I had to be stronger than you. Or I couldn't tie you up. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blaspheme will be forgiven people, but the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What are the Pharisees doing? What are they doing? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? In this case, what were they, how, how did they blaspheme the Holy Spirit in this case? By the way, what does blaspheme mean? Blasphemeo. To speak evil of. To speak evil of. You blaspheme by speaking evil. Speaking evil of something against someone. I can blaspheme you by speaking evil against you. How are these guys blaspheming the Holy Spirit? I thought they were blaspheming Christ, weren't they? So how did the Holy Spirit get brought into this? Well, the Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit was the one empowering Christ to do it. So if they say, you're doing things by the power of Beelzebub, who are they equating the Holy Spirit with? With Satan. Satan. And Christ says, you know something, guys? That is bad. In fact, that is so bad that you don't get forgiven now, you don't get forgiven in the age to come. Why is that? Well, who's the agent of regeneration? Who's the one that gives you spiritual sight? Who's the one that opens your eyes? Holy Spirit. I don't think this can be done today. Now, there are, there are guys in the charismatic group that's you know, maybe your healing boy will say, look, you know, if you, if you accuse me of doing this without the power of God, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I think you would say that. All right. And it's like, guy, I don't think you're doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit because I compare your healing with the Bible's healing and you guys are worlds apart. You're not doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm going to call down the fire of God on you. Well, you just go right ahead because you're not doing it by the power of God. I think this is a, what we call a dispensational sin. What do we mean by that? It's a sin that only could be done by the people there. Is Christ right now physically doing miracles in front of us? 
physically in front oh, of us. No. <laughs> no. Unless you're smoking something I don't know about, he's not. Not physically. All right. You can't speak a. You can speak a word against the Son of Man. You cannot speak a word against the Holy Spirit. Either make the tree tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of. Yeah. Oh, that's not very user friendly, isn't it? I mean, I thought Christ was Mr. Milk Toast, right? He never would say anything bad. You know, the Jesus Seminar boys would have to throw that verse right out because Jesus is not, you know, he's supposed to be this nice guy, quintessential nice guy. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You guys are evil. How can you do anything good? What's the rhetorical answer? You can't. A good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. What is going to happen on the day of judgment to these guys? God's going to replay all of us. God is going to replay, in this context here, God is going to replay the words that these guys did, and they're going to be nailed. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. It's like, what? Yeah. I I've, okay, so far I've healed a guy. I've cast out demons. I've healed them all. I've healed everybody. Cast out demons. And all you guys want to do is you want another sign. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the, at the judgment with this generation, condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone, something greater than Jonah is here. Look, what, what is Christ doing? Christ is telling these guys, he's saying, you know what? The Ninevites have more spiritual savvy than you guys do. Jonah shows up, the worst prophet of all time. The one who went the other way when Christ, when God called him to go to Nineveh. The one who preached, and you got to bet, when Jonah was preaching, he was not preaching to really do, to, to make an impact. He was probably just mumbling the words. And what did Nineveh do? The whole city repented. And then here Jesus shows up, the creator of the universe shows up, does sign after sign, miracle after miracle, and all they want is another sign. And Christ is saying, you know, you guys are stupider and dumber than the Ninevites. In fact, in the day of judgment, the Ninevites are going to rise up and accuse this generation. You guys should have known. God's judgment is, is commensurate with how much light you had and how much opportunity you had. Well, we, remember, our sins are forgiven. Our sins are covered. 
But you're you're better off growing up in the middle of Bongo Bongo with a bone through your nose, stark naked in the jungle, eating monkey meat, than you are living in America. If you're not a Christian. There's a lot of people who believe America's going to pay dearly. The world is going to pay dearly. The whole world and then listen, he said, The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The Queen of Sheba came a thousand miles across the desert to find out about the wisdom of Solomon. And there's a greater one than Solomon here now, and you guys won't listen to him. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes out and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So will it be with this evil generation. What's he saying there? What's he saying to these Pharisees? What's the word picture here? Well, what is Christ doing? What's he doing? What has he just done? Cast out demons. So the demons have been cast out. All right, they're they're out. Okay, and they don't find any rest. So they go and get some other ones. And when Christ is gone, and they come back, and they find the house empty and swept and put in order, and they enter back in. When Christ is no longer there, what's going to be the last state of the person? Worse than at first. Here's the point. I think, and I think this is the point that Christ is trying to make. If you don't respond and act upon the truth that you have now, it's going to be worse for you because you're going to be inoculated against it. Follow what's going on here? Here's a man who has the demon cast out. But if the Holy Spirit is not there, if God does not come in and take up residence, and he falls back into his demon possession, what's going to happen to him? The last state is going to be worse than the first. Because he knows that. Right. This same picture, I think, is used over in 2 Peter, where it talks about the dog returning to his vomit. It talks about false teachers who know the truth, and they turn their back away and walk away from the truth their latter end is worse than the first. Why? Because they know what they should have done. They have an understanding of what should be done. And because they didn't respond positively, the latter end is worse than the first. Christ is telling Israel, basically, I have come. I've cast out the demons. I've cleaned the house a little bit. But if you guys don't do something about it, when I'm gone and the demons come back, it's going to be worse for you then than it is now. Because you've not done something about it. You got to do something. While he was still speaking to his people, his mother and brother stood outside, asked him to speak to them, and he replied, 
who is my mother and my brothers? And he stretched out his hands toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother, here are my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what does Christ do here? He is basically, what, what hap what's happened to Christ here in, in Matthew 12? What's basically happened? What, what's clear to Christ now? They're, they have rejected him. They're, they reject his leaders. They want, they're conspiring to kill him. They're accusing him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Right? So this is the turning point. This is the turning point. This is the turning point. Before this, Christ is offering the kingdom. He's offering, and this is a bona fide, valid offer of the kingdom. If they would repent as a nation and turn to God in faith, they would get their Messiah in their kingdom. But what have they done? They don't want that. They want the Messiah of their own creation. They have rejected the Messiah. They don't want it. So what is... Yeah. They had a history of rejecting prophets. Yeah. So what, what does God do here? Did this foil God's plan? No, God knew what? What did God know? So what did he know here? He knew they were going to do this. He knew that. God does not have a plan B. He has a plan. There is no plan B with God. He knows what's going to happen. And so immediately what happens now, that same day, Jesus went out. He's been rejected, right? The Jewish leaders have said, you're Beelzebub, you're the prince of demons, you're casting out demons by the prince of demons. They don't want to have anything to do with him. And Christ, in, in talking about the, the, the issue here of the unclean spirit, basically says, you guys, this is the turning point. Your latter end is going to be worse than the beginning. He sat by a, beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so they got into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. The birds came, devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He has ears to hear. Let him hear. Same day, what does Christ begin to do? He begins to teach them in what? Now, he hasn't been talking about parables to this point. This is a new thing. He's not preaching crowds. What have the crowds basically done? What do the crowds want of Jesus? No, they want fed and healed. They want fed, they want healing. What do the, what do the religious leaders want of Jesus? They wanted a big pat on the back. They wanted him dead. They've been Jesus has been rejected. So what does he begin to do? He begins to teach in parables. And the disciples came in verse 10 and asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you doing this? 
And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given. Whoa. What's Christ saying? He's going to reveal the kingdom to them. To who? To the believers. To the disciples. And he's not going to reveal it to the crowds. Why? Because they weren't going to be a part of it to begin with. They would not believe. and now They cannot believe. Because you, and, and again, we understand. The Bible says, if you will not believe, there may come a time when you cannot believe. God has the right. Does God have the obligation to keep pounding at you until you believe? No. no. The people have rejected him. They want the healer. They want the food. The Pharisees don't want Jesus at all. He's not their kind of Messiah. They want a political kingdom. And Jesus is not going to give the people what they want. That's not why he came. And because they would not listen, because they would not listen to what he was telling them, because they didn't want to understand, he says, okay, now you can't. I'm going to hide the truth from you. And you say, well, that's not very fair of God. It's absolutely fair of God. God, by definition, cannot do anything wrong, can he? Although I could say God pounded me a whole lot longer than I deserved. He did. For to the one who has, more will be given. To those who listen, what will God do? God will reveal more. more. To those, and I have abundance, but from one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If you don't respond to the truth God gives you, what might happen? Even that will be taken away. God's under no obligation to keep beating on you. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, do not, nor do they understand. What's he saying? Seeing they don't see. Hearing they don't hear. They hear the words, but they don't get it. They see the miracles, but they're not catching on to what's going on here. In fact, it's what Isaiah said. And by the way, this is quoted, this passage is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other passage. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull with their ears. They can barely hear. Their eyes that they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What have they done? Their rebellion and their sin has clogged their ears and eyes. They can't see. Their heart has grown cold. And this is a great warning. If you don't respond to God's truth when he gives it to you, what may happen? Your ability, your sensitivity will be lost. You won't be able to get it. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you did, what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying, blessed are you because you hear. Now, why is it that the disciples heard and the people didn't? Because from the sovereign perspective, what did God do to the disciples? He opened their eyes. But from the human perspective, Gary, how did they respond when, when Christ taught they them? They were open to it. So there's both sides of this. Don't, don't lose sight of that. They were fertile soil, but God made the soil fertile. Yeah. Both of those, and I don't figure, I don't understand. The opportunity was for the Pharisees too, except for the fact that they love their traditions. Yes. 
stronger than they were willing to change. They were not willing to be open. And if it, you sit really listen to people, even today, you ask the question, why aren't you a Christian? And there's always going to be the response, I would be a Christian, but. Yeah. When you're a pastor, and, and this is this is, you know, when you're a pastor, you're preaching to people, don't say, well, if you're elect, you're in, and, and don't go there. That's something for you to slog through at night or in a class like this. Don't, don't go there. Christ never went there. Christ pleaded with people to open their hearts. Paul did the same thing. Paul said, listen, hear. You do that. You, you call for them to open their hearts. And you see very clearly in the Pharisees, in spite of all the opportunity and all the truth that God gave them, they just would not open their hearts. They would not believe. And because of that, they lost their ability to believe. They lost their ability to see. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.